0: Hey, Rockheads, quit trying to tweet my jokes and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 474 with guest Christian Brooks, recorded live Monday, July 20th, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering .NET Nuke video training with Chris Hammond from Engage Software on DVD in our TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com and by Grape City Data Dynamics, makers of activereports.net. Simple, powerful and cost-effective reporting for Windows forms and asp.net web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .net developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now The man who asks the question, is that a Veto in your pocket or an iPhone? Carl Franklin! Thank you very much. Welcome to
1: .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers, as Lawrence has just mentioned. This is Carl Franklin, New London, Connecticut, Richard Campbell in British Columbia. How are you, sir? Doing very, very well. Enjoying the uh, later part of our summer now. We were just bantering with a guest before the show, and uh, he reminded us that you've got a fire out there. Yeah, we have. Well, we there's always during the summer, at least thirty or
2: forty forest fires in BC. It's it's normal, uh, but we have one that's uh, actually hitting one of the major towns, uh, Kelowna, and uh, lost a few homes, and it's uh, it's a big deal, and it's very challenging to deal with when it's that hot and dry as it is up there right now. Uh, that's
1: awful, and, you, and so lots of water bombing going on. Wow. Yikes! That's all I get to say about that. Hey, let's get into Better Know Framework. All right, on a more whimsical kind of crazy sounding music note. Yes, the .NET Framework is not whimsical, though. No, it is not. The and the Better Know Framework is this little segment where I like to shine a little light on different areas of the .NET Framework, just so that over time. You'll sort of get a feel for what's in there and how it's laid out even if you're not one of those people who likes to crack open the docs and and uh, read it all all the stuff that you don't need to know. Uh, today I'm talking a little bit about inside WCF specifically Microsoft.ServiceModel.Channels.Mail.ExchangeWebService web service namespace Oh So inside of WCF there's a connector to exchange exactly Wow the Microsoft service model channels mail exchange web service namespace. Say that three times fast, provides the implementation of the Microsoft Exchange server mail transport on the desktop by using the .NET framework. Nice. Yeah, figured you'd like that. Yeah, yeah. And for more information, crack open the doc file and read those things that you care not about. Well, if you didn't know that WCF can communicate directly with Exchange, now you do. Now you do. Go and look and it so up. there's bindings, transports, and all of that stuff in there. Fantastic. Yeah. I did not know that. Well, now you do. That's my job. Nice. So, what's up uh, What's up in the world of email? Oh, the... I got a good one for you here. Is it a flame? It is not a flame, Ugh, but it man. is a
2: good little analysis. You know, I, I think that show we did with Scott Ambler, about 460, where we talked about development methodology, uh, really resonated with a lot of people. We yes. got a bunch of email around it. And here's another one. Yeah. Hi, guys. I was listening to show 460 with Scott Ambler, which I really enjoyed. There was something that picked me a bit when Scott talked about developers' liability laws proposed in Europe. I am a developer, and I often heard during my career, 14 years so far, that the developer is the ultimate person responsible for the quality of the code that he wrote, and is ultimately responsible for the software they ship. For me, developers are like soldiers. They're on the field. They ultimately do the job. However, like soldiers, even though they share a large part of the success or failure of the campaign project, there are other factors that are out of their control. Strategy, resources, management, stress, and so on. Did he say stress? He said stress, yeah. Okay. What about if a company were to put pressure on developers, making them work extra hours, which is very common in this industry, and sometimes cutting the corners on QA? Hmm. Then one might expect a lower quality software as the outcome. That's why we should be very careful. Software development is a very complex activity, and we should avoid blaming the end of the chain only if it fails. Okay. Fair enough. Furthermore... If you look at what the EU wants to put in place, it looks much more like making software companies responsible for the reliability of the software for two years after they sell it, like any other physical good that you buy in the EU. Yeah, I mean, that's
1: perfectly normal, I think.
2: Well, it's an interesting thought. Let's get into this. I'm just going to finish the email, and I'll happily debate with you. I quote the article. Priority area for possible EU action is extending the principles of consumer protection rules to cover licensing agreements of products like software downloaded for virus protection, games, and other licensed content. It makes more sense since the companies will be responsible to provide necessary support during a certain period after you purchase the software and not make them legally liable if the software breaks. Thanks again for your podcast. Samir Bilouti in Montreal,
1: Canada. A Canadian. Yeah, another Canadian. I'm surrounded by Canadians today. <laughs> there so. you
2: go. And I'll, Samir, we're going to send you a mug, but first I'm going to talk a little bit about what you were just saying there. I agree that developers shouldn't necessarily be held responsible for quality of software. While they certainly affect it, they're rarely in control of it. And if you think about building a bridge, if the bridge falls down, it's not the cement layer's fault, It's the engineer's fault. Not that, you know, not that he laid the cement and maybe the cement was
1: laid wrong, but that he allowed he signed off on that bridge saying it's done. Well, you're making my point, which is that I'm just scared of any blanket legislation that sort of aims to circumvent a fair trial you know what I'm saying? I think that in, these are very complex things, and it could be the developer's fault. It could be the manager's fault. It could be a lot of things that, that could have gone wrong. And to automatically just say it's the developer or it's the manager or it's the software company or anything or it's Microsoft you know, what it, because it's running on their op, operating system. I mean there's so many ways, depending on what the, what the thing is, if it's a vulnerability in the .NET framework. And it gets exploited. Yeah. Is the is the developer liable for that? Is the company liable for yeah, that? Bad video drivers. Bad video drivers. Exactly. Know, all these things. So all of those things together. Um, so I'm just I'm I'm just a little scared when whenever there's any legislation that says, "Hey, we don't need to have a fair trial on this because the, my law says right here that the developer or whoever X party is responsible." Uh, I totally agree. And I also think I mean, the
2: big issue, and this is what we talked about with Scott Ambler, was the idea that currently the end user license agreement absolves everyone of responsibility for poor yeah. quality software. Right. Yeah. And that, I think, is a problem. Somebody needs to take responsibility for it. But they could probably set fairly interesting criteria around that. Yeah. you know, For sure. example, trustworthy computing stuff or you know, certified hardware and configurations and drivers. So that you have some protection from all those sorts of things. And I just think that we're headed there in some sense. And right now, the EULA is a problem with that. I don't, you know, so far what I've looked at with the EU's behavior towards software in general is bad.
1: Yeah. EU, end user. (laughs) Lots of them. European Union. Of course. I'm making a joke. Yeah, troublemaker. And with that, uh, before we uh, bring Christian on here, I just want to mention that, yes, uh, Infusion Development, our friends in New York City, are still hiring. They're always looking for really good, talented people. If you're a SharePoint god or goddess, you might be interested. Uh, Or if you're just a general .NET wonk and really uh, want an adventure in your life because they have offices in New York City, of course, but also Toronto and London and Dubai. Yes, I said Dubai. So they've, they've hired a whole bunch of our listeners. They, they sort of look at .NET Rocks as a, uh, a you know, built-in filter. They figure anybody who's taken the time to subscribe to a podcast where people are very passionate about software development, that means they're, they're, they're probably doing something right. So. And, uh, so if you're interested in that, in a position with these guys, uh, send me an email personally, carl at franklins.net, and I will pass it on to the right people. And with that, let's introduce our guest, Christian Gross, a former regional director from Germany. He now works at a hedge fund called uh, Chancery Securities. Did I say that right? Yep. Chancery, Chancery Securities Limited. Limited. Yes. We got to get that liability clause in there. As a trader writing strategies in .NET and Excel. Welcome, Christian. Hello there. Now, you were an RD for Germany, and yet you're a Canadian living in Switzerland. Uh, yep. How? How does that work?
3: Well, all right. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm a product of the North American education system. <laughs> <laughs> you see, I, I'm actually really German-Canadian, right? Uh, but okay. I grew up in the States and Canada, and after I graduated from, um, uh, from engineering... Uh, My wife and I, I I think, Richard, you might remember that. In 92, the economics in Ontario just sucked. Yeah. And my wife and I, we both graduated, we had degrees, and we were like, great, no jobs. So we went over to Europe. And my wife and I, we've worked in France, Côte d'Azur, we've worked in the UK, Austria. Germany, Switzerland, that's where we live. And I've done consulting in Japan and in India. Actually, ironically, I did the outsourcing in 96. Before, you know, huh. it was quote, quote, hip and happening. And now my wife and I, we live in Switzerland. I work for a hedge fund. My wife works for an investment bank.
2: So you're living the adventure.
3: Yeah. Sounds that way. Yeah. Yeah, I guess.
2: So you caught the Channel 9 video of, or was, was it a Channel 9
1: video with uh, Ted Neward? Yes, I did. And that was at, in uh, in Norway. But, yeah, but before we go to
3: that, could I actually throw in two bits about the thing with Scott Ambler and EU software liability? Is like that taboo? Or- no, I'm- no, please. Absolutely. Okay. What I think you're actually talking about and what actually is going with the software liability is in- in the EU and in Europe, what they're trying to introduce is what you could call the lemon law. And it doesn't mean that you're automatically going to have to sit there and say, oh my God, there's a bug, there's a virus. It's, it, there, there's a bit of, how shall I say, uh, common sense applied. You know, is it really your fault or is it not? Uh, okay, without me being too cynical... Yeah, Microsoft would have a heck of a time with Vista. That would really fall under the Lemon Law. Um, (laughs) Maybe I'm touching on people, but then again, XP wouldn't fall under Lemon Law. I I think that's really what they're really trying to get at. Okay. So uh, personally, I'm not against it. I'm actually quite for it.
1: Well, oh, I'm not. I definitely am not against anything that protects consumers, but yeah, I, I just uh, and, and I, I guess you know it's not legislation that says that a such and such party is
3: is to blame no matter what, is it? I mean, no, 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 no. It, it's lemon law. It's really a lemon law. That's really and what because I think what has actually been getting under the nails of a lot of people in Europe is the fact that software kind of says, oh, guess what? It fails. Oh, it's your problem. I think that's been getting under the nails because if you were to buy a car, you were to buy a lawnmower and so on, you wouldn't expect the same things, right? I mean, software has progressed. I mean, I started writing code in the late 80s and compared to today, man, software is stable as a rock.
2: Yeah, well, especially when you're talking about, and if this is one of the points that was made in the email, consumer software, right? Like video games in shrink wrap boxes on shelves being sold to consumers that have major bugs in them. They're just poor quality.
3: Yes. And you, you
2: think there should be some protection around that.
3: And I think that's what it's actually really trying to get at. It's really trying to get at those blatant bugs, not as the hold. The developer or the company for every little thing. I think it's really the blatant. Now, viruses from a legal perspective. Now that could be interesting. Yeah. Right. I mean, from a legal, but you know, I'm not a legal scholar. I'm just an engineer, right?
2: Yeah, there's possibilities there. It'll be interesting to see what they come up with. And in the end, the market does sort of dictate behavior too. Like, uh, if it's if it's completely insane, it's going to break the market. You'll find vendors will just simply drop out, and they'll become a gray market for software.
1: You know, there's a company in Mystic, Connecticut called USA Video that has an actual patent on all video transferred over a network. And so they have they have no money, and they have been trying to collect on that patent ever since, you know, ever, ever since. And so when video over the internet became a thing, and, you know, it's built into Windows tools and Mac tools and... Uh, you know, even Linux tools, and there's all these people making money doing video over the internet, this guy comes up with his patent and says, hey, guess what? You all owe me because you're using this thing that I have this broad patent on. And since he doesn't have the money to pursue the likes of everybody in the world, you know, Joe versus the Volcano, good luck collecting on that. So, you know, sometimes common sense prevails. And sometimes it's you know, good. Go ahead, go ahead and sue us. You know, we'll we'll just you you won't make it past year one. And that brought the conversation to a screeching halt. <laughs> yeah, I still don't know if you
2: thought that that was a good that it's a good patent or a bad patent.
1: I I don't know. I mean, can you have? A, I mean, if you have a patent so broad. But there's a, the thing where the law is on the guy's side. But- yes. So British Telecom happens to own the patent for hyperlinking.
2: R- right. Yeah, that's right. Right. It's a, it's a bad patent, but yes, they have it. In theory, they could enforce it and try to collect money on hyperlinking. And, and that would be bad. And I think somebody at BT finally clued in and said, you know, if we prosecute this, that would be bad.
1: It would be bad. It would right. be bad for everybody.
2: And it, there's a you know there is a business to be had by folks who who file patents on ideas and then wait to see if somebody executes on them and tries to collect money from them. It's, it's it's kind of a seedy business and it, yeah the patent system is broken and it, it says the guy who's filed a few right? Yeah, right like, one of the things I think that's interesting is that you don't actually have to execute on your idea at all you just have to submit it and, and somehow get it right. passed sure. And I, I wonder if execution wouldn't be a significant, shouldn't be a significant part of patent law.
1: Maybe you should, you know, or just more than an idea, have 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 a working prototype. But I'd also say this, especially in the software
2: world, more than anything, the twenty-year patent limit is totally absurd. Software in general as a patent is kind of absurd because if you don't ship a version every year, anyway, you just get mowed out of the market. Hey, if they can patent molecules,
1: they can. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, genetic
2: oh, engineering okay. patents are another whole other can of worms. Well,
1: let's not even go down that uh, rabbit hole. Let's get back to our focus, which is the death of the speaker. We got to set the stage for this, right. Christian. You you
2: saw that <laughs> video that that Ted Newer did with Scott Hanselman.
1: Yes. So let's talk
2: about
3: it first of all.
1: Talk about that video.
3: Well, I, I think I, I think Ted was speaking the the reality of the situation with no holds barred. Um, I think what Ted was saying, saying, look, with all of these free conferences coming aboard, what happens to the professional speaker? And th- then the discussion ensued about what is a professional speaker and what is a content and blah, blah, blah. But I think the gist of what Ted's comment was, well, what happens to the professional speaker in a land of free? And I think that's a very legitimate comment, I think. But I think also it's sort of like a smaller piece of our entire change, what's happening in giving out information,
1: giving out everything, giving out more than information, giving out data, giving out music, giving out. I mean, there's so many ways in which this free stuff has disrupted the economy. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik, without whose support this show surely would not exist. You know, summer is peaking and our friends at Telerik are working full steam. They've just released a Q2 volume of the Telerik Premium Collection for .NET, which is their biggest release yet. Packed with new things, it'll surely excite anyone who has anything to do with .NET development. Let's start with Silverlight and the introduction of the first commercial 3D chart on the market. It is developed as True Vector 3D, which guarantees swift performance and rich capabilities like rotation, animations, etc. Another major announcement is the Telerik Silverlight Scheduler, which is packed with tons of features, even in the first version. Telerik's flagship, RAD Controls for ASP.NET Ajax, grows not only with four new controls, but also with new productivity tools. Take the new Visual Style Builder an online application that allows you to visually modify skins or design new ones with point-and-click. And And if that's not enough, they've added a completely new product, a free testing framework powered by Art of Test for automating Ajax and Silverlight-rich Internet applications. Since I'm short on time here, I can't enumerate all the new features and enhancements in the Telerik Reporting, Open Access ORM, and their Windows Forms products, so I'll leave it for you to check them out at Telerik.com. And don't forget to say thank you for supporting .NET Rocks.
3: I had a I had a longer talk with Richard Hill Shaw and Dan Appelman. They're two good friends of mine about this. Because I thought, you know, before I'm going to sit there and talk to .NET Rocks where people listen to that that better sound half-intelligent. So I'll talk to two intelligent people. And basically, I, I think what we all came to, to, to the conclusion of is Live with it. Deal with it. Um, there was one comment in, uh, in, the, in the video that said, oh, if you create compelling content, then people will pay for it. Uh, eh, no. Uh, I don't think compelling content is actually going to change the game. I, I think what you have to do is you have to find what people are willing to pay for. In fact, that's actually why I got into the trading business. Because believe it or not, people actually pay you to write software because not many people actually understand how to write trading software properly. And as a result, what you have is you have a bunch of people with money or not that will say, hey, can you write this for me and I'll pay you for it. And it was a really bizarre, you know, before I was always like very much into the RD thing and technical and learned the latest thing. And then it kind of went, uh, no, no. What, do, what are people going to pay me for? And then one of, one of Dan's big points was actually he said, you know what, we are entering into a revolution that is on the same scope as the industrial revolution. He was saying, we are entering the information revolution and where it comes out, we don't know. Google is a really big part of it. I mean, Google is an economic destroyer. But, of course, it's also giving chances for other things. I mean, if you look at the people who have survived because of Google, but then again, there's also people who have been destroyed. I mean, I know myself. Okay, I'm not a great book author, but let me tell you, it sucks to write books. Yeah,
2: book business is dead.
3: Yeah, and part of it to blame is Google. Now, I'm not going to be very angry at Google. I'm going to say, oh, you bad thing. It's just that, well, Google has empowered the user and they can put in a little search term and they can get a bunch of free answers. And guess what? It doesn't stop at books. It goes to the speaking business. It goes into the training business. So when Ted was saying, hey, uh, you know what? The death of the professional speaker, I'm just saying, you know what, Ted? You're right on the money. But now let's talk about the options. You know, what are the options out of it, eh?
2: Well, and it's also a question of whether this is permanent. Part of the conversation in Oslo is this idea that we're in a cycle about speaking, that right now that the smaller, regional, low-cost conference that can't afford to even pay the expenses of a tr- of a speaker are very much in vogue, and the big, expensive shows are are dying and it could be just a matter of economics but at some point you're really talented speakers if they can't even get you look look i will come to your show i'm not a snob small show big show whatever but i'm not actually going to pay money to come to your show right i don't got to buy my own flight and so forth you got to cover my costs if you can't do that i'm not going to come and eventually You're going to not have these speakers going to shows because it's just, you know, if I can't make a living at all or can't even break even at all, then I'm going to go do something else. And eventually
1: those speakers all drop out of the business. Now, that doesn't mean that the people that take up their positions aren't going to be good speakers. Right. It just means they won't be professional speakers. They'll be professionals who speak because it's fun and they want the notoriety or whatever but they won't be professional speakers. Is that a good thing or not? What does that do to the quality
3: of the content? Well, well, okay, that's actually a point that Ted was kind of going at and understand. But actually, I want to actually rewind a little bit to what uh, what was said just a minute ago. Is this a phase? Will this change? My answer is no, this is not a phase. This is a permanent shift. Uh, okay, there actually, me and, uh, when when I was talking to Dan, we both came to the conclusion, said, have you noticed the age at these conferences? I mean, me and Dan, we've known each other for over a decade, right? And we look at the ages, and we're going, we're all the young people. And Dan was telling me, he says, you know, I sit there, he's, a, okay, in America, there's this program where you can be a mentor to younger people? I, I don't know exactly the name, but he was sort of telling me, he's saying, we're losing the young people the young people are doing other things they they you know they they grew up with google they grew up with a certain thing and i don't think the conference scene is really part of their thing
1: you know what though i'm i'm going to disagree with that i see more young people at these regional local code camps and and many conferences than i do at TechEd and and, and you know dev connections and yes okay, v- live yeah, that's they're what free, I'm saying. Right? Yeah, well, they're either free or they're cheap. They're, some of them right. aren't free, okay. but they're cheaper.
3: Okay, so then, that I guess that brings back the, uh, um, uh, Ted's point: the death of the professional speaker. Because sure, if it's free or cheap, yeah, anyone will go do anything, right?
2: Yeah, well, typically when you're talking about a tech ed, somebody senior in the in a company gets budget to go. You know, there's only so money to go around, so the more senior guys tend to go, who also tend to be older. Where the regional shows because they're so cheap, everybody gets to go.
1: And you know, I'm not disagreeing with you. I th- I think the the role of the professional speaker is dying. I'm just questioning whether that's a bad thing or not. I mean, ultimately, it, yeah, it might be bad for the speakers, but uh, is it bad for the attendees? Are the people that speak at code camps and uh, you know the dev links and and these you know the these smaller conferences are they any less experienced or have less information to share or less accurate information to share than somebody who does it professionally?
3: I think the question comes, what are you, what are you interested in? Right? I mean, when you sit there and you say you have professionals that speak, I I think an argument could be made that, well, there are people who actually use this stuff every day. Maybe that's what you kind of maybe want to learn. I mean, that's an argument that some people make because I think it wasn't in the video that they said a professional do nothing.
2: Yeah, that was Scott's line. That that you know, if you if you're, all you're doing is if you're making your living is speaking, you're not actually doing the work anymore. How relevant is your presentation? How good can you be? The, I think the the juxtaposition here is the balance between the talent of communicating
1: information well mm. and then actually having good information. Yeah. And so my question stands. You know, is is it a is it a bad thing?
3: I I, I think it's a thing that probably is neither good or bad it's just a reflection of the times
1: i agree I th- and i think you know yeah if you're a speaker or you're a big conference promoter mm-hmm, things are going to change for you yeah but yeah. Uh, and, and for, if you'd... for the dot net community or for the community of software development in law at large i don't see it as bad deal
2: yeah it's just going to be interesting times as these things shuffle around and people figure out where to get their knowledge from but i also think the dynamic of conferences is changing as well People are sharing and learning differently.
3: Online? Yeah.
1: This show, for example.
3: I, 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 I see it in the trading business where online um, trainers are actually very, very popular. Um, there's this one guy, if you go on futures trading, uh, uh, sorry, on YouTube, and he's a Mr. Futures Guy, Oscar. Do a, Google, uh, do a YouTube search, Oscar and Futures Trading. This guy's a a how, but this is how I kind of see it in the trading market. This is what they do. They all go online. Some of this, this stuff is free, and other stuff, believe it or not, is not free and not that cheap either. You see, this is actually something I find a bit funny. I don't know about you guys, but have you seen that much movement of the conference or the talks business online outside of Channel 9? But has... I don't think it's that popular, is it?
2: I think folks are trying to create an online conference, but it, the biggest problem you've got is that people go to conferences. I don't even know that they really go for the content per se. They go to be amongst their peers. Well, it's, it's the both. conversation in the hallway.
1: It's both. I mean, those valu- those conversations are valuable, and they're certainly really valuable to guys like you and me, Richard, who sit get to sit in the speaker's lounge and actually talk to the speakers and, and, and get our information that way. But sure. But it's both. And the online experience is a different experience. But ultimately, right. it does come down to getting answers to things that you need and finding out about new things that you wouldn't have otherwise. And, um, the, you know, you can certainly get that experience online. And, again, I'll say this show is a perfect example of that. You know, the content is free. We make our our, our money from advertising revenue. And we ask our, that our listeners patronize our, our – uh, our sponsors, and uh, they get to have listen to conversations like this and learn about things that they don't necessarily uh, that wouldn't necessarily cross their radar otherwise.
2: But all right, let me take another angle on the free thing. Then, what concern? Right now, we've got the regional shows, the code camps, and the like that are sort of taking seem to be taking the market by storm. That's where people are. What concerns me is that I don't know that it's sustainable. That whole business runs on the back of volunteers. And eventually, you run out of volunteers. Like, you're going to burn them up. It's hard work to put on a conference. And when there's no compensation at all for the organizers, at some point,
1: it's going to stop being fun. Well, there's, there seems to be no end to, uh, to people that want to do it, though. And they just keep coming.
3: If, if I look at the open source community, which I got into like at, at around 2000, there's lots of volunteers. It doesn't stop. It just keeps coming and coming. And because he, he, if you really think about it, open source, it should have dropped dead a long time ago. But it just kind of seems on chugging. So I, I don't. I don't think you're going to have um, not enough volunteers. I think the only thing that could kill something like that is if the show isn't cool anymore, or if it isn't neat. Yeah, or if it's been superseded by something else. Well,
1: and that's like, what happens uh, in the cycle of these things. They, you get a new generation that has their mark with their, you know, started with code camps, and then it turned into these other mini conferences, and then there'll be another wave uh, behind that. So, and each one of them throws up their their new speakers, you know, uh, that do the circuit. It's the way it goes. I see.
2: Yeah, and you still got to get back to the question mark of is, how effective is this, is this as a learning device? Are people going to be – are willing to go?
1: Well, the answer is obviously yes. The market has spoken.
2: At this point, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, this is cyclic too, right? The, the first wave of people go to these things because they're so inexpensive. But the, sooner or later, the boss is going to have the question of did that provide value? And if it and if these shows are not perceived to be providing value, and that could be because their speakers are less skilled, but there's a bunch of reasons why it might not be there, then the people aren't going to show up. It's
1: it's all about the attendance. Well, I think any any manager worth their weight in salt who's ever been to any kind of conference understands the benefit of uh, you know, especially for somebody who's uh, more socially outgoing and will engage in group discussions. Um, you, there's so many things that. Personally, that I learn every time I go to one of these things, just by sitting and eavesdropping on conversations, walking into it and saying, "Yeah, that's very interesting," but uh, you know, and then I ultimately end up learning a few things. I mean, it's just every. I I think it's well known that these sort of sort of social um, learning gatherings, if you want to call that, you know, just so that we don't have a million terms work. They, they, they are value. They do provide value and specific value to the stuff that you're interested in. You can always find new th- ways to think about the things that you're already doing just by talking to people.
3: Okay. That will get you the value for the attendee, but then it comes back. Let's say you're a professional speaker or you're in that business. What do you do, right? And I think that that point becomes, okay, so you're going to be interacting, you're going to be talking to them. I think you then have to sit there and figure out a way to get them to crank open their wallets to sit there and say, okay, please come in and do this for me. And I think that is really going to be the big challenge. I think you're going to have those free things and then you have to go in there and say, okay, you know what? I got this. And interestingly enough, that is a model that that the trading business takes, and it's a model of believe it or not that the art world takes.
1: Well, yeah, the art world, the music world, the, it's you know musicians that play in bands around here are still getting paid the same thing they were getting paid in 1982, <laughs> and you know the cost of drinks has gone up, but you know for for a duo act they're still getting you know 100 bucks a piece. Just like they were getting back then for an you know for four hours of entertainment. Well, anyway, um, the the thing I, the thing I wanted to get back to was the speaker. You know, what does this mean for the speaker? And you know, I think it's sort of like okay, the cheese is moved. We got to figure out a way to get the cheese back. I I don't I don't buy it. I think you know if you're if you're getting from all of this information the fact that this is the way it is now you're not going to get the speaker fees that you used to get then you do something else i mean there no, there isn't a guarantee in markets you have to you have to figure out a way to uh to 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 make your money with the talent that you have end of story
3: okay yeah that's the route i chose cuz i'm not that great of a speaker right and i really crank back but i think for other people i think they like Let's say you're really a speaker there and you're talking about topics. I think you have to choose topics that people will say, Hey, um, bring me in and you, I'm going to give you certain training or I'm going to give you certain knowledge that you need to pay for. And I think you need to specialize. Because I think that is going to be one thing that in the future will help that you have a certain knowledge about a certain domain and you're the de facto expert. I mean, let's be real about this, Scott Ambler, right? I mean, do you call in Scott Ambler to sit there and say, hey, Scott, I want you to do my uh, uh, Windows uh, uh, WFC application? No, I think everybody who wants to see Scott Ambler, who wants to pull him in, knows you're going to get that one thing and as a result, you're going to have to pay for that. Mm.
1: Yeah. Well, th- when these the conferences that are popular don't have the money
3: to pay for it, they won't. What are you going to do now? And I think, and I think someone like Scott Ambler or whatever, they'll he'll go to these conferences so that he can get those other gigs.
1: Okay, but if nobody's showing up at those conferences because
3: they, no, 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 I mean at the free
1: conferences. Oh, at the free, the free conferences. conferences. Oh, you're saying yeah, that the, I mean, the big speakers will go and do it for airfare. And you know cost and just because that 's what they do, and they won 't get paid
3: well, i think they 'll have no choice i think well, I, I think they 'll just have to go to those conferences i don 't you see i 'm even tempted to believe they probably won 't pay won 't get their airfare and all that paid they 'll just have to go there in the hopes that they 'll get more business
1: yeah so that's a, that 's a, always been a a sore subject for people who attend conferences is that when you go to a talk. And the talk is, you know, around something you're interested in and you get sort of boilerplate material and at the end a sales pitch. You know, that's, that's always been a very sensitive thing. However, if you're one of these people who is your, your, your domain is something that everybody's interested or, or a large group of people are interested in knowing about, whether that means they have to drop some money on a product or not, this person has the knowledge that's going to help them solve their problem, then, then that's a different thing. But uh, it's a fine line, and, of course, it it all depends on the the product and the service that's being provided. Oh, of course.
3: I mean, if, if, if someone sits there and goes to a talk and sits there and says, look, um, I'm going to sit there and start selling you a thing, I mean, you don't deserve to speak. No. I, I, I think there's going to be – I think there's a lot of speakers we could probably name right now that we can say, look, these guys are selling you something, but they don't make it apparent on stage that they're selling you something. Right.
1: And if you're interested in this, talk to me after the t- yeah,
3: yeah. I, I I think there will be a shakeup.
2: No, I think there's be there is a shakeup going on right now. We're just trying to call out uh, some of the effects of it, and and yeah, there's no good or bad here. It's going to be what it's going to be. Yeah, uh, I'm still not convinced that it's not a cycle that that people are going to st- stop ha- getting value from the small shows, and suddenly the big show is going to look more valuable. But uh, it's hard to know. It is hard to know. Yeah,
3: okay. Okay. I don't know how old you guys are. I'm going to show my age here. We're both 42. I think you're 42. Oh, okay. I'm I'm 41. So we're the answer to everything. Yep. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. And um, I, I started programming on the Commodore PET. And then I graduated up to like the Commodore 64, right? And then when I was in university, I was actually doing Windows programming, and I remember when I graduated, what was a really cool feeling is that when I came from North America to Europe, they all said, oh, oh, this is a programmer from North America. You see, North, actually, they said Americans, they, kinda, they didn't know Canada existed, right? They said, Americans are really good programmers. Remember, this is about 94, right? Oh, they know what they're doing. We don't. And it was really easy to get great money. It really was. I mean, the contracting was great. We just went to the UK and people gave us jobs. We went to this and it was outrageous. And then when the year 2000 bubble crashed and things like open source came in and it really gathered and all the Internet gathered, it didn't come back. And that's why, you know, when you're saying it's a cycle, eh, I don't think so. You know, I, I, I would love to charge my hourly fees that I was charging at nineteen ninety nine, I can't charge those fees anymore. I, I you
1: know I'm I'm tending to agree with you and Richard I can see where where you can see a cycle because we have seen cycles in other things, like outsourcing yep. we saw a cycle. Mm-hmm. We saw a cycle where it was all of a sudden cool to offshore your development to Bangalore. And then we Learned slowly about you know people pulling their developers back in house because of the the cultural differences, the time differences. It was just too much to deal with. So so that was a cycle. But you know, in terms of you know what we're talking about here is just the overall effects on the of the internet on society, and it's happened in so many sectors. It not just you know not just training and development. As I said, musicians. You know they're. It's a totally different world for for artists and musicians when their product can be so easily stolen. You know, anybody who produces anything digital is, you know, has got to rethink their entire existence. You know, am I really going to do this for a living? And so, so I'm not so sure. I mean, there's always going to be people that will do stuff for free with when it's available cheap. Um. I just don't know. By that same token,
2: there's always people who want to pay less, and so when there's less expensive alternatives. But there's a Pareto's Law game here which says, hey, you know, we're going to do these cheap shows, and they're going to be at least as 80% good for 20% of the cost. And the question you got to think is, is 80% sufficient or is there points where you want the better solution
1: You're assuming that low cost equals low quality and I'm not agreeing with you Well
2: that, that is a good question you know if does low cost equal low quality When I look at people making m- music in their basements their engineering quality is pretty
1: low But you know sometimes the music is better than anything that you could get at Sony music you know it's you never you know it's not about the and you don't need a a production house to go stand up in front of people and talk. Yeah. You just don't. It's a pretty low tech business. Really, all you need is good people and good people are everywhere. So anyway, we we can agree disagree on that but um but I think uh, I think yes it it is a real trend and we've yeah. We've talked about the. Let's talk about magazines. Holy crap! There is a dead business. How about for you. newspapers and magazines? We, you know, we touched on this couple of years ago. That are, are we really heading in this direction? And by golly, the answer is yes. Yeah, and yet, and so
2: let's argue the cycle there. Do you, can a magazine make a comeback?
1: I, you know, I'm not so sure it can, Richard. I don't you know. There's some magazines still selling out there. I still have my pop size of I think it'd be more in the form of a technology like Kindle. It just as the iPod sort of re you know, bought brought people back to purchasing music and you know, the convenience factor of an iPod, and an iPhone or whatever with iTunes worked. And that that's something that people can do and they can live with and work with. I don't think that the magazine the way, you know, a paper magazine is ever going to come back in this business. I don't think it's going to happen. So whatever returning entity, if there is a returning entity, will be a very different creature. Well, yeah. And right now it's called websites and podcasts and that's what it is. So, you know, if but you have technologies that will make it easier for people to digest that information so they're not tied to their computer if that's indeed the limiting factor for them, which I'm not so sure it is. But there you go. So I just, I, there, there will, I think, be these constant reinventions of, you know, the delivery of the benefit that you get from, from old dead technologies, if you want to call it magazine technology. But, uh, but I don't think that form is ever coming back, at least in our business. Maybe it does in, you know, fish and game. Maybe those magazines are thriving. Certainly the uh, magazines to uh, teenagers are thriving nicely because that's all you see when you go into CBS these days. It's just ridiculous. Anyway, I sound like an old man.
3: <laughs> I mean, the only thing I would add with the teenagers, I think once they have a cool form, it's dead in the water. I, I, I think the only, that's, I think, the really thing missing. I mean, I, I, I see it in the habits for myself. I have uh, the Apple gadget. I love it to bits.
1: Apple gadget, meaning the iPhone or iPod?
3: Uh, the, the, the iPhone. I get my news all through that. I get all my market data through that. I could not be bothered to buy a, news, uh, a, a newspaper anymore. And supposedly in the fall, Apple's going to bring out a tablet, and I'm like going, please, please, I want it. And when I look at also things like the Kindle, man, it's changing. The Kindle just I don't think is hip and happening. I have nieces, and they're like 15 years old, and I just can't see them walking around with a Kindle. But I could see them walking around with an Apple, the new supposed Apple tablet.
2: Oh, oh, the Air well no, this is a new one supposedly coming. They've got file patents for it. It isn't out yet. Oh. Yeah. There's rumor right. really that Apple's making a tablet. Okay. But that might and that might be interesting. I you know the thing that's cool about the Kindle, and of course this only works in the US, is that it comes with this three G connection that lets you get to Wikipedia and and, uh, and download your books and stuff. Like it the, the new Kindle actually is the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Speaking of forty two, like like it's it's the cycle, it's a encyclopedia Galactica.
3: Oh, is it, oh, that that's sweet. Oh, that's true. I never thought of it that way, but that that's completely true. I met a guy last week who
2: who has written an app to take his email, turn it into PDFs and mail it to his Kindle because a Kindle has its own email account. So he can read email on his on his Kindle. He can't write it, but he can read it.
3: Yeah. Okay, did he charge for this app or did he give it away?
2: You no, know, it's just for him. Oh, just for him. Oh, okay. He I didn't, didn't even share that. it. <laughs> oh,
1: okay. Interesting. Well, uh, we're going to uh, make this a short show, but uh, I, I thank you for very much for, for joining us here. It's been, a, it's been compelling, to say the least. Christian?
3: Okay. Thank you for having me there. I, I, I truly appreciate it.
1: Yeah. And uh, if, I'm, if I'm ever in Canada, Germany, or Switzerland, I'll, I'll look you up. <laughs>
2: okay.
3: <laughs> Richard, are you coming to Basta again?
2: I might, yeah, I might just come to Vasta again. I'm still working on that.
1: Okay. All right, and we'll see you next time. On .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video. <audio>... <audio>... <audio> post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net.